Father, we want to thank you for each other. We thank you and gather in your name this morning and we pray as we engage with your wonderful word that you might shape us and help us to be like the very stars of the night sky shining in this dark world, holding out life and hope to all around us. Help us to do that even when it's hard and help us to do it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Anyone watch the Sydney to Hobart yacht race? You ever see that? I think most people just watch the start. Um, and the news snippets, uh, for the first time in years, it was a, a tight, thrilling finish. There was two boats in it. Uh, and uh, Wild Oats 11 came in 26 minutes ahead of uh, Comanche, but then there was a protest, and then uh, Wild Oats received a one-hour penalty, which meant that Comanche won by 34 minutes. Uh, so it was pretty exciting stuff. Uh, and I don't know a whole lot about yacht racing, uh, or the finer points of tacking or keel hauling or whatever they do. But what has always impressed me are images like this. In fact, I think that's the only reason the Sydney to Hobart Yacht Race runs, so that we can get photos on the news like that. Think what it would be like to be on that boat. Uh, anyone want to volunteer? Uh, if the Parkers were here, they've, they've experienced that. I mean, they... Uh, I don't know if they've done the city to Hobart, but that's the kind of thing they do. Uh, think of think of the adrenaline that would be coursing through your veins if you're on that boat. Uh, think of the teamwork involved, uh, the coordination, the precise timing, the strain, uh, the way they support each other uh, and work night and day, pulling together against the incredible forces of the wind and the waves. Because that's kind of like what the church... Uh, is supposed to be according to God, what, what God wants us to be as a church. And I want us to hear the call from God today to that kind of level of energetic, active, strenuous and committed labour together. Not in the pursuit of a trophy, which everyone will forget about in a few days' time or at least until next year, and they'll go, did Wild Oats win again? Oh, no, that's right, it was Comanche this time. <laughs> but for the sake of the public truth that Jesus Christ is God's King and Lord. In fact, that's what the whole letter of the, uh, to the Philippians is about, how the church might stand shoulder to shoulder in committed partnership, braving opposition together, straining and striving with active, energetic, coordinated focus to see God's kingdom grow. We've seen it already several times in the letter so far over the last few weeks. For example, uh, back in chapter 1 and verse 27, which I reckon is the key uh, phrase in the whole book, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. That's that kind of image, isn't it? Contending as one for the faith of the gospel. You hear the effort, the strenuousness, standing firm, straining, striving in active, energetic, coordinated pursuit of God's gospel going out. And we've heard some of what that means in the last couple of weeks, uh, what it means to work together and be humble and so on. Uh, but in the second half of chapter 2, which we're looking at today, Paul drills down even more deeply into what that's going to mean for you and for me and for this church and for all of God's people to do it together. And so we're going to get into it. 
And what Paul does in our passage today is make two very strong appeals to us and then he gives us two very great and wonderful examples of people who have absolutely grasped hold of what he's talking about. Incredible examples for us to aspire to be like, to want to be like. We'll start with the two appeals. The first appeal he makes is in verses 12 and 13 and that is to work out our salvation. Work it out with fear and trembling. Did you hear that when it was read? Therefore, my dear friends, as you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Now, the word to work out there is a really extreme form of the word work. It's to, to labour to toil, it's uh, you know the kind of, imagine a guy with a pickaxe going for it, it's that kind of labour, it's about sweat. Uh, over the last uh, year or so, uh, at the invitation of some of the night church guys, uh, I have taken up playing squash. Uh, <laughs> you know, wasn't a sport I've been particularly familiar with. And while it might seem to the untutored eye, to the, to the untrained observer that I am gliding in swan-like serenity across that court. The reality is that I've really got my lungs dragging along behind me as I find myself engaged in a level of energetic, committed, strenuous activity, the like of which I've not experienced before, even as a soccer player. But that's because I'm a gold-tending cherry picker. But that's... A <laughs> It's hard work getting flogged around the court, uh, being forced from side to side, chasing a little black ball. In fact, I sweat so much that Gavin often refuses to let my sports bag in the car, has to go in the back of the ute uh, on the way home, and he probably thinks I should sit there too. But <clears throat> that's the kind of effort that Paul's talking about here, the hard work, the hard work of the yacht crew. But what are we to be doing with this strenuous effort? What are we to be turning our hands to? Well, he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What does that mean? How do you, how do you work out your salvation? How do you flex your salvation muscles? Does Paul mean that we should be panicking, trying frantically to earn our way to heaven? Well, many people down the years have taken it that way, but that's not right. And you can tell that from two reasons. One, because of the word therefore. Therefore, at the start. Therefore, because of what I've just been speaking about, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. That is, what's he been talking about uh, just before? And I'm glad Dave read that bit in verses 5 to 12. That, that Jesus Christ has already guaranteed people's place in heaven, our place in heaven, through his sacrificial service on our behalf. In fact, he gave up everything, all the glory of heaven. He didn't grasp it. He didn't cling to it. He gave it up, sacrificing it all to become a human and become obedient to death, even death on a cross. We looked at that on Christmas Eve, how he gave up all the riches of heaven for us to save us. And therefore, because Jesus has saved you and now reigns as Lord, work out your salvation. But notice also he's not telling us to work for our salvation, he's telling us to work out our salvation. You hear the difference? 
Uh, working for our salvation, if he'd written that, would suggest that working hard will somehow get us citizenship in heaven. Whereas working at our salvation means we're already citizens. We, we have our passports. We've got all our documents in order. For Jesus gave himself sacrificially on the cross, winning for us our eternal salvation. And so now we're members of his heavenly kingdom, the only kingdom that really matters in the end, Jesus' kingdom, and in obedience to our king, work out your salvation. Work out what it means now to be citizens of God's kingdom. Work out what your life should look like now, now that we know what God has done for us. Well, what should life be on about then if we're going to work out with strenuous effort? Well, we're driven again back to verses 5 to 11 where we're told to take on the mindset of Jesus Christ, have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus who did what he did. Given that Jesus himself enters into the form of a slave to serve uh, in slavery, others so they can be members of heaven, so you work out your salvation and empty yourself in service of others. Given that Jesus offered himself as an eternal sacrifice of sins for the benefit of us, now you work out your salvation by giving yourself sacrificially wherever God has placed you in life. Given that Jesus has been enthroned as both Lord and King of God's eternal heavenly city and your citizenship's absolutely guaranteed in his glorious kingdom, then work out your salvation as a subject of that kingdom. But notice something else. Because who's really doing the work? He's telling them to work hard, but who's doing the real work as we take on the mindset and the attitude of Jesus of, of selfless service? Well, he says God is doing the work. You see it in verse 13. For it is God who works in you to live and to work to his good pleasure. Now think about what that means. If it's all this effort that we might put ourselves to for his kingdom is actually him at work in us. Uh, At the very least it means we're not alone. Uh, We're not isolated rocks who have to weather the storm ourselves. You might feel like that sometimes. I know some of you, you know, feel very alone at the moment. But you're not. He is with us. The God who pours himself out in love to save you is the very one who is with you and is at work in you. He's in you, changing you, transforming, moulding, shaping, encouraging, strengthening you. And we need to know that for two reasons. One, so that we can avoid gung-ho self-sufficiency. We don't have to be Clint Eastwood. We don't have to be Arnie, you know, one man against the world. God's with us. He's in us. He's working in us and through us. But it also helps us avoid the kind of gutless inactivity where you don't do anything for fear that you might be doing the wrong thing. We're not to be pious pacifists who say that we love God, who who pray for opportunities But then the opportunities are coming and going and we still wait and wait and wait and wait and wait and and never do anything. God's charge to us is to be giving our lives in sacrificial service for his kingdom and glory, 
humbly relying on his strength as we do his work. So that's the first appeal. But there's a second appeal he makes, and it's the appeal to do it all together, to do it in a united fashion, joyfully sharing the same passion and vision for God's work. And you see that in the next paragraph in 14 to 16. He says, do everything without complaining or arguing so that you might become blameless and pure children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life. They say that when the going gets tough, well, you tell me, when the going gets tough, I don't reckon that's true. I reckon when the going gets tough, the grumbling starts. <laughs> you see it in the sports teams that, that you know, the team that's been winning the league loses a few matches. Uh, so rumours start, conversations are had in backrooms, the, the fans and the newspaper writers are casting blame and the coach gets sacked you know, from losing four games in a row. Um, the whole organisation organization becomes rife with discontent. You see it in politics, don't you? Uh, as the party that, that wins a landslide victory in one election amidst enormous optimism begins to feel the heat of reality and the knives start to come out and all of a sudden there's a leadership spill. You see it in the office when there's intense pressure with big deadlines. The atmosphere changes and... The backbiting starts. People turn on each other. You see it in families. You see it on holidays. As you're having a wonderful time driving around the countryside until we're lost. And then the fighting starts. And Paul's aware that that's the normal way things happen under pressure. And when you're in the business of serving God in the single-minded pursuit of his gospel going out as a church, that there will be pressure. You will stand out. You'll stand out, in fact, as he describes, as the very stars in the night sky against the dark backdrop of this crooked and depraved generation. Now, I don't know if you've been driving in the country recently and uh, or maybe you can just remember how the stars look uh, when you're away from the glow of the city and the smog, it's it's spectacular. It's so bright. But it only serves to highlight how dark the backdrop is. And even though the light is glorious and it's a wonderful, inviting light that's full of life and love like an oasis in the desert, when light confronts darkness, there's always going to be trouble. I mean, didn't Jesus himself promise that? It's par for the course. But he's saying, don't let that put you off. Because even though there'll be trouble and opposition and hardship, as we hold out the word of life in this dark world, God's promising to do his work in us and through us to draw others into the light, into his light. It won't be fruitless. There will be people who come to life And that has been consistently the case over these last few years as we've refocused together as a church. Hundreds of lives have been changed. And so how much more important is it that we stand together, encouraging and building each other up, rather than bickering and tearing each other down 
not making jabs at each other and criticizing every little thing, not holding on to grudges. Paul says, get rid of those bad attitudes and ways of operating. Be the team, be, be the wild oats team in the, when the gale is blowing. Be the Comanche team when the waves are crashing over the deck and the water's swelling, united, steadfast, humbly serving each other's needs, shining as stars, offering Jesus hope and life to each other and to the world. So that's the two appeals that are made in this second half of chapter 2. The appeal to give, us, give ourselves in selfless, sacrificial service for the interest and eternal well-being of others as we work out our salvation and the appeal to be united like the Wild Oats crew as we hold out uh, the wonderful offer of light and life to our dark world. But so that we might take some encouragement and comfort, you might think, well, that's really hard. (laughs) How am I possibly going to do that? Well, so that we can be encouraged uh, and see it's entirely possible Paul gives us two incredible, wonderful, powerful examples of people who we can copy, who are doing that. This is what it looks like. And they're wonderful. It's a bit like if you've ever done a sports clinic or or an art class or something like that where you're learning a skill. Uh, They don't just lecture you on what to do. They they come up and do a demonstration. Uh, You know, you go to a a cricket coaching clinic, and I was never any good at cricket, uh, except at sledging, but uh, <clears throat> the most important skill gets more people out than anything else. But anyway, that's... Uh, but, you know, they talk you through how to do a hook shot, but then they come out and they show you. They, you know, you get someone to bowl it, and the, then the coach gives you some demonstrations of the perfect hook shot. You know, you stand here and you hit it that way. And, uh, And that's what we're given here. Two men are held up before us as worked examples, if you like, of everything that Paul's been speaking about so far. I'm cheating, there's actually three because he uses himself as an example, but we'll skip him. And they're particularly powerful examples for the Philippian church because they were people they were intimately familiar with. First, there's Timothy. Timothy, whose mind affects where he looks. His mindset affects where he's focus is and his attention is and where he pours his energy out. Uh, Timothy had been Paul's companion on many of his mission trips, including his time in Philippi, and so they knew him. He was there when Lydia, you know, the dealer in purple cloth, was converted. He was there in jail with Paul when the Philippian jailer was saved. And you can see through these verses how Timothy is described in ways that, that echo many of the ideas he's mentioned in the theory part of the lesson. So, for example, verse 20, I have no one else like Timothy who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ, but not Timothy. Isn't that exactly what Paul's been speaking about? Back in verse 4 of chapter 2, he, he was saying you must not look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. Well, he's a guy that does that. Or verse 22, Timothy has proven himself like a son with a father. He has served with me in the gospel. Compare that to verse 7 where Paul spoke of having the same mindset of Jesus who made himself a servant for the sake of others. So here's a man who (coughs) they know who takes a genuine interest in their welfare. You can imagine Timothy on sleepless nights on a hot summer's day. 
You know, it's 39 degrees in your bedroom. But Timothy's up, he can't sleep, and he's pacing the corridor, and his wife comes down in a dressing gown to see what's keeping him up. And eventually, because husbands never say anything, she prizes out of him what's going on, what's bothering him. And it turns out it's what's happening in Philippi, how they're going. He's genuinely concerned for the welfare of the Philippians. But what's the engine room of Timothy's passion? What drives him? Well, verse 21, everyone looks to his own interests, not the interests of Jesus Christ, unlike Timothy. He's so grasped who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. He's so filled with a love for Jesus and a love for Jesus' people that he's consumed by the same passion as that of Christ Jesus, the interest and eternal well-being of others. You can imagine Paul sitting in his prison cell going down the list of potential co-workers and partners who he might send off to visit the Philippians because that's what he's sending Timothy to do. Ah, I could send Frank, but oh, I don't know. Frank's really only interested in his own comfort and you know his children and grandchildren's education. He's not really focused 100% on Jesus. Uh, I could send Bridget, but she's just so interested in her looks and on the next party and who she's going to impress. I could send Fred. I mean, friend, Fred's a, a junior partner at a law firm. He's, I mean, he's an important guy. Uh, you know, he works for Cuffet, Budget and Shred. Uh, <laughs> and, and though he's extremely conscientious at work, he's really only concerned by having the best performance figures and the bottom line, so he'll never engage in selfless sacrifice for the sake of others for the eternal well-being of his colleagues. But then there's Timothy. Uh, Timothy, yeah. I'll send Timothy. There's a man I could, who could go. Genuinely concerned for the interests of Jesus. Genuinely concerned about the Philippian church. Loves people, puts them first. I'll send him. So he's the first example. But the second worked example is Epaphroditus. And if Timothy's mind affects where he looks... Epaphras' mind affects his health. Verse 25, I think it necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. I mean, you guys send him to me. I'm sending him back, not because I don't like him, but because he's so wonderful as it turns out. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill. He almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I'm all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad, and I might have less anxiety. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. See, the Philippian church gave Epaphroditus a job to do. Paul was in prison in Rome. And as a prisoner in the first century, he wasn't living in the lap of luxury. Uh, he, that prisoners just lived off what their family and friends would bring. And for the gospel work to progress while he was a prisoner in Rome, he needed money to publish his letters and buy scrolls and ink and quills and, and do the sort of work he was doing. 
because he didn't want to stop. And so the Philippian church had organised a collection. They passed the hat around. And Epaphroditus, who's not mentioned anywhere else in the New Testament apart from this letter, he's given the job, he's commissioned as a kind of gospel gopher (laughs) to to carry the money uh, from Philippi over to Rome. Philippi's in Greece. And perhaps he's someone you can relate to because he's not like Timothy or Paul who are the upfront people. He's a behind-the-scenes guy. You know, he gets, he gets, gets stuff done. He's straightforward and uh, he has a straightforward task to carry the money from A to B. But on the way, he got sick, dreadfully ill. But because he'd been entrusted with the money and only he could take it, he realised the future of the gospel work in Rome at this point entirely depended on him. And so though he was sick, he risked his life to get the money there, risking his life in the process, and it nearly killed him. I mean, you can imagine him sitting in a surgery, you know, a medical centre halfway across Europe, uh, wired up to the ECG, and the doctor says, well, now look here, young Epaphroditus, um, you're going to have to take a break from this nonsense. You, you've got to take time out and rest up, take some tablets and go home to bed. And Epaphroditus says, no, the gospel work in Rome at this point depends upon me getting there with the money. And so he went on. He didn't go out of his way to get sick. He didn't try to make himself ill. But once sick, it, because it depended on him, he laid his life on the line, realising that to live is Christ and to die is gain, which is what Paul taught us back in chapter 1. To live is Christ and to die is gain. He is a true citizen of heaven, realising that the only kingdom that counts is that one and that he's already there effectively in heaven because Jesus has bought him and saved him for that kingdom. And so he lays his life on the line. And that's why I think Paul calls him a fellow soldier because that's what soldiers do, isn't it? They lay their life on the line for others. And what greater cause is there, what greater kingdom is there, what greater king is there than Jesus, who in his love gave his life that we might live, who's ascended, risen on high. He's the one to whom every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. What would church be like if all 260 adults that are on our church roll modelled themselves on Timothy and Epaphroditus. What would that be like? Can you imagine? What would it be like if each and every one of our minds were where their minds were and it affected our entire outlook so that we were ready to pray selflessly for men and women in our streets or in our office, ready to set aside time for people, ready to share the good news with them, ready to model to our colleagues what it looks like to be a member of the only kingdom that counts, ready to serve selflessly and sacrificially. What would a church be like if all 260 adult members were like that? I'm not saying we're not like that, but what if we were? That would be amazing, wouldn't it? It would be like we were the Milky Way, shining in the vast, empty darkness of the MacArthur region and of Sydney 
and of Australia, of this world, shining as stars as we held out the word of life to our world. Father God, we thank and praise you for your word and for this incredible challenge to lay down our lives in selfless, sacrificial service for the interests and eternal well-being of others. Help us to have the mindset of Jesus Christ that we would lay down everything for the sake of others. Help us to be like Timothy, single-minded focus, concerned, genuinely concerned about others' welfare, genuinely concerned with the interests of Jesus Christ. Help us to be like Epaphroditus, knowing what needs to be done and doing it even though it costs us. Father, we pray that our church would be full of Timothys and Epaphroditus, that we might shine like the stars in the night sky to our dark world. And though we face opposition, we pray that we wouldn't bicker and argue when that comes, but we would stand firm together and we pray that in your mercy, in your glory, you would draw countless hundreds, thousands of other people from our community into your kingdom as we witness to Jesus in our lives, in our church, in our words, in everything that we do and say. In his name we pray for his glory. Amen.